everybody to Masnaigan Isqueo. It is a beautiful windy day here in the capital of somewhere. Alberta? Yeah. I don't know. Have we ever said that where we're actually from other than, I don't know. Have we ever actually said where we live? I don't think so. I don't See? know. I don't know. I'm just keeping it mysterious today. Well, I don't want like some weirdo showing up at my house and locating my VPN or something. I don't know. Is that something you're concerned about often? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, it is. I say some pretty saucy things online sometimes. Perfect. Yeah, so we're here today. I'm Kayla. I'm Sheila. I'm Tanya. And we're here today with... Tammy. Perfect. And we are here to talk about actually writing Indigenous stories. Yeah. So I'm going to turn it back to our special guest. She's extra, extra special because she's actually my mom. Yes. <laughs> she brought me into this earth and she can take me out. I know. <laughs> Is that a rule? When you have kids, you can also take them out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's my maker. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh God. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, mom, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'm Tammy. I'm writing a story right now, and it's based on my childhood, which I grew up in a small village about 60 miles northwest of Winnipeg, right on the lake and the south basin of Lake Manitoba. What's the village called? St. Ambrose. <laughs> That's the English version. What's the French version? St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose. Sweet. Mm-hmm. I know we're here in Edmonton, but do you want to talk a little bit about how you ended up here or how you, where, where did your travels bring you to here? Why? Or away from St. Ambrose? Actually, I left St. Ambrose when I was 13. My mom decided that she wanted to get an education and she wanted a career. So she packed up the three of us kids and we moved to Winnipeg and she went to Red River Community College and she did her clinical experience at the Health Sciences Center. So once she moved to the city, things didn't turn out between her and my dad. They split and we ended up staying in Winnipeg. So got our education there and from there, my husband had to move through his work to Alberta and we moved to Edmonton and then he got moved again to Vancouver and we were there for about uh, nine years and then an opportunity for him to come back to Edmonton came up so here we are cool yeah I've been around yeah <laughs> I think a lot of Métis people get around. Yeah. yeah. My mom yeah. is also from Manitoba. She was born in Carberry. Carberry. And then ended up out here when my grandparents split. There's something about hopping into a car and just driving. Yeah, and just you know? leaving. Yeah, Métis people are like that. And I, I think it has a lot to do with our history with the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even I bolted as a teenager. I yeah. pieced out a tow field at 16. Mm-hmm. And moved to Vancouver by myself. Mm-hmm. Like, see you never. Yes. Then ended up in Tofield again. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'll never do farms again. And then here we are, mm-hmm. 12 years later, living on a farm again. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think we've always been somewhat nomadic because the government would have their people go and take us out of our homes and 
beat us in the streets and so end up moving on. So you move on to the next uh, village and again, same thing would happen. Um, they'd send in their people and burn our houses down, kill mm-hmm. our animals, and there we are having to move again. It's oh, that Johnny yeah. McDonald. He's it kind is. of a jerk. Oh, yeah. He's oh. the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a drunk. Like, who would, who would elect a drunk yeah. to be our, our first prime minister? <laughs> Settlers. <laughs> the Canadians. <laughs> the Canadians. <laughs> I, I think he, bought, he just bought it, I think. What made you decide to write down your stories? Well, there's a few reasons. The stories that I have from our community, they're really at their core in so far as trying to identify them and their culture. Most Métis people are extremely religious. They're very strong into the Roman Catholic Church. And the stories that we have are stories that in, in specific ways, help encourage people to continue going to church and, and to lead that lifestyle mm-hmm. by scaring them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to go to my village and ask people about the stories, they wouldn't talk to you. They don't talk about the mini door anymore. Uh, my dad was a, a really good storyteller, mm-hmm. and he believed every every word that he spoke. So when he was telling you the stories, you believed every word that he said. That, of course, scared the crap a lot out of a lot of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> and and because of the stories are more um, dealing with the devil rather than dealing with Christ, it's not something that they repeat. And I believe that the stories are starting to die out because the kids of my generation aren't talking about them because they grew up scared. Yeah. And it's almost taboo to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to clarify, Mum, a little bit about... So it seems to me like your story is a mixture of, I guess, the more traditional stories, uh, mm-hmm. like the ghost stories that you just mentioned, and also personal narratives yeah uh, the story itself is is based on my life in a small Métis village tossed in with the religious aspect of, of how they they live their their life through their beliefs and in essence how they they live their lives what did they do what kind of work did they do how do they interact with each other that sort of thing like you get a really good look into the life that we led. So has anyone else from your community written down any stories before? Has anyone else written um, anything about your community? In kind of a roundabout way, uh, there is two stories out there. Anita Lavalley, she was a teacher within the St. Ambrose school system, and uh, she wrote about the Bernier School which is a school that was in our community. It was run by nuns. She talks about, you know, how the classes were, having to, you know, bring water in and, and light light the fires and things like that. And she talked about the, the student body itself and how many teachers they had. The highest number of, attend- of uh, children that we had was 32, I believe. So we had two classes in, in one room, basically. 
and she talked about the school and and where it ended up. Pretty much that's it for her. Another gentleman, his name is George Fleury. He actually was from Madeline, St. Madeline, Manitoba, and he's part of our family, part of our village, and he and his family had property at the fort. Um, George uh, wrote his account of, of what happened to our people. We had this property at the forks, uh, right down by the Assiniboine River, and close to where the forks met was where we had our properties. And of course, um, the Métis people at that time were pulled from their homes and beaten in the streets and, and their animals were killed. So they, they moved on to a place called St. Madeline. And they had been there for quite a while. What they like to do, the Métis people like to pick berries and, and you know prepare for the winter. They would gather foods and, and whatever they needed to last them throughout the winter. And that would take them away from their homes for, you know, an extended period of time. You know, not just a week or two weeks, they'd be away for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. So they were away um, picking berries and when they returned, all their homes were burned down. All their animals were dead. So the people that remained of that community just picked everything up that they had, which wasn't a whole lot, and they moved to St. Ambrose, which is still there now. So his story runs a little bit farther back than ours, but mm -hmm. it explains where we came from and how we ended up where we are. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like there's two individuals who wrote about the community before, but it doesn't seem like very many. Why do you think that there's only been a few people that have written about this history? Unfortunately, uh, one of the things about the Métis people is the quality of education that they received. Um, even my own parents, my mom went up to grade nine and later on in life she challenged uh, and ended up getting her GED. My dad, uh, his family was starving, so he had to quit school when he was in grade three and he was driving fence posts for a living at that age. Fortunately, a lot of the Métis people have that issue and being unable to complete their education or getting a poor quality education. By poor quality, I mean with the Bernier School, for example, we had nuns teaching the students. They were not equipped to teach. They did not have a teaching degree. They didn't have anything except a Bible. Mm. So they weren't qualified. So the quality of education that they received was not good. There you go. So what do you think that says about the importance of you writing this down? I think my story is unique in the way that it, it includes the way of life that we led. It will include the religious aspect of the Métis culture. And it will include how the devil or stories of the devil affected their lives. It's a really broad spectrum because a lot of the Métis people where I'm from, they weren't just roofers. They weren't just this um, or, or that. They actually had several different careers that ran along with the seasons in the year. So for example, in the fall time, they would guide and they would be guiding American hunters to come and shoot geese and ducks 
So that's what they did. And we had deer hunting in the fall. So again, we'd have American hunters and they would take the hunters out and and help them, assist them in in their hunting. And then during the winter time, the majority of the people did ice fishing. So we would make 100 yard nets. And in the winter time, we would take the bombardier, load it all up with our nets and we'd have our auger on the back of the bombardier and we'd find a place where we wanted to drop our nets, cut a big hole in the ice with the auger, drop our nets and flag them so that we knew where they were and come back the next day or the day after and pull up our catch. From there, they would go to market. So, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, finish up. Um, I was gonna say, in the, in the winter time, a lot of the people there, they had small farms, and we'd be dealing with calving. Mm. And then in the springtime, they actually usually went out to the city, either Winnipeg or Portage La Prairie, and they would do roofing during that time. Summertime, we'd be baling and getting ready for the winter. So they always had something different to do year-round. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the listeners what a bombardier is? Oh, <laughs> My guess is they might not know. (laughs) Okay. Picture a house with a rounded top and picture tank tracks on, you know, the the tanks on on the bottom. And then in the front, picture some skis. So skis, track, a rounded house. That's what we would use to go out on the lake with. I've only seen one once before, but they're pretty cool. Yeah, they are yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Basically go out on the ice like a badass. Yeah. Yeah, wow. exactly. I've never seen one, but I can picture it, and yeah, pretty badass. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've only seen one in a museum. Oh, wow. Yeah, the one that she saw in the museum was very similar to the one that we had. They're doing things differently now, like they have um, GPS that they use mm-hmm. now. So they're a little more technically advanced than what we were back then. <laughs> and we just took a chance. Okay, this looks like a good spot. Let's drop them here. But even that, you just you don't just cut a hole into the ice. Mm-hmm. You cut the hole, and then what you do is you drop your net. And this is 100 yards, so you have to you know slowly put it into the water. But before you do that, you put a jigger. And a jigger is kind of a, a tool on the end and the jigger what it does is it bounces like this at on the surface of the ice and you have to follow that jigger once you get once the jigger stops and that's the end of it you know that's the end of your 100 yard net so you would dig another hole there bring up your jigger and you would flag that area so you knew where your net went in and you knew where your net ended Hmm. Very cool. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why did you t- decide to tell your story at this point in your life and not earlier? There's actually a few reasons for that. Uh, my, my story is, it has a lot of highs and it has, unfortunately, a lot of lows. And the low portions in my life would dramatically affect other people had the story been told sooner. Mm. I'm at a point in my life where my dad has passed away, so he cannot be hurt by the story. And 
I think his life, I, I think that he had suffered enough and I didn't want to bring any more pain to him by having to relive that period in our lives by the book coming out. And at this point as well, my mom, she has Alzheimer's and she is very pleasantly confused. (laughs) 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 And it won't affect her either by me bringing up things from the past. Mm -hmm. And the story in itself, the way it is right now, I had to make sure that my family was ready to hear what I had to say about my life before I proceeded. Mm -hmm. They all gave me their assurances that, yes, they are ready to hear it. Mm -hmm. And they've been having a bit of a hard time with it. They had a vague idea what my life was like, but uh, with them getting the smallest details, it's hard for them. And they feel guilty about their role in my life and their role being standing by and doing nothing. Mm. So now they're having to deal with that, that guilt. But I tell them, hey, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Life is good. You know, the last um, 46 years of my life have been wonderful. Mm -hmm. More than makes up for what I went through as a child. Yeah. So how does your family's reaction or, I guess, just family's roles maybe in the story affect how you represent them within the story? I represent them how I saw them at the time. With time, you know, it does heal a lot of wounds and and you look at things from a different perspective than you do when you're a child. A lot of the... Well, let's we'll just say I described them how I felt they were at that point in my life. Right. And you're getting a, you know, a kid's perspective on, on what they thought about you mm-hmm. <laughs> growing up. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, one portion in my story where I was talking about we had a chickens. My mom decided that she wanted to earn money by raising chickens. The chickens, there was one chick that wasn't well. Chickens, when when there's one that isn't as active and healthy as the others, they'll all pick on the one Mm -hmm. until it dies. That's what happened in, in this case. And I was talking about how these chicks picked on the other one to the point where they killed him. And I didn't like that. And I said, well, those little chicks are just like Israelites. They're all bloodthirsty bastards. (laughs) (laughs) But that was my perspective at that point in my life because I had just gone through my catechism, my communion, Mm -hmm. and the instructors were the priests. And he went into great detail about what happened to Christ when he died. Right. And the Israelites paid, played a major role in that. Yeah. So that's how I saw these chicks. <laughs> oh. Before kind of coming out and writing your story, talking to your family about it, have you ever told your stories to your children before this? 
And sorry, I can't remember your sister's name, Tanya, or else I would have been like Tanya, but I can't remember your sister's name. Sasha. Her name is Sasha, yeah. I would give them little snippets of my life. I didn't start telling them about the hardships that I had in my life until they were a little older to understand the hardships and, and what I went through. But insofar as the folklore, actually they started hearing the stories from my dad and he had them sitting on his lap one day and they were so cute and and their little you know summer dresses and my dad's telling them all these devil stories and I'm looking at hey don't tell them that you're gonna scare the crap out of them (laughs) (laughs) so he he stopped telling them the stories so they didn't really get them until they were a lot older Mm mm-hmm from I guess my experience because I how is it for you (laughs) reading them that's the thing like I understand like bits and pieces like bits and pieces we would grow up with them like parts of the stories but never the full story so it's definitely been really weird in a good way because then you kind of understand okay well this is why I am the way that I am Mm -hmm. you know this is why I think about this in this way so I don't know I think it's more interesting than anything else because it's a part of not just my mom's story, but my story too. Like it's mm-hmm. it's all interconnected in a in a way that I don't know. I think it's really fun to read about it. Yeah. If that's I don't know if that's morbid or whatever. But I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's been really good. But do you talk to your kids about where your mom's from and like where your family's from? Like, do they know? I know they're pretty young, but. Well, my daughter, she's six, and she does know a little bit about it, and she knows about Métis, she knows about the sash, and she knows about, she has some traditional dresses, and she knows actually about, both of the kids know how to smudge. Oh, nice. But little things like that, you know, they don't really understand the full details of it, and I don't think that they will until they're a little bit older. Right. Do your kids know about the devil? They know about ghosts for sure. The devil, I don't think we've talked about the devil specifically, but ghosts, I think, are an everyday conversation in our house. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but we don't talk about it in a scary way. It's like, yeah, those are the ghosts, whatever. They don't bug us and we don't bug them. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, they definitely like to talk about that kind of stuff and they love ghost stories. But yeah. that's part of that's part of it because it's, it's in them to know and it's, mm-hmm. it's in their, I don't know, I feel like it's in their soul, mm-hmm. which is probably why I like ghost stories and weirdness and mm-hmm. how I'm a morbid individual with all my skull shirts. Yeah. And I'm also wearing a skull shirt right now. You know. I always liked dad stories. Mm-hmm. The scary part about the stories for me was the fact that he absolutely believed every word of it. Mm-hmm. And of course that, that belief would transfer to you. So you're part of it as well. Some of it I had uh, issues with throughout my whole life. My family, my dad, said that I was with the devil. Because of that, I I wasn't really, uh, I was kind of like the black sheep in the family because I was with the devil. I loved music, I loved dancing. She's barking at the neighbor. Or a ghost. Or Or ghost. Ah, probably rabbits. Oh, the devil. My dad believed that I was with the devil. Devil needs a firm hand, I guess. <laughs> and then because I was with the devil, he would tell me all the time that the devil likes to tickle the toes of bad kids in the night. So I slept with my socks on until my dad passed away. Mm-hmm. 
it's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's this thing also, because you were talking about how uh, your dad believed the story so much, because Tanya's PhD research is kind of on... Mm-hmm. Uh, devil stories and the mm-hmm. other day we were talking about how you can interpret things differently we we're having a good conversation about one of your stories about the horse's mane being tangled oh yeah yeah, yeah. and <laughs> how we all interpret that story as being different mm-hmm. when reading it and it got really interesting so. Kayla has a very similar thought pattern to you actually yeah <laughs> Would it be okay to talk a little bit about that story? Sure. Well, the story is called The Farmer, and the story starts out with a farmer who has prized horses, and he spends lots of time brushing the hair of the of the mane of the horses. And the priest would come in and kind of wave his finger at him, say, don't spend so much time with the horses, you're missing mass, you know, pointing at his... I don't know. I imagine him pointing at his wrist or whatever, but who knows? Supposed to go to church on Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Why aren't you in church? And the farmer is like, nuts to that. I'm just going to keep brushing my horses, right? And as time goes by, he starts to notice that it's getting even harder to brush the mane. There's more and more knots in the mane, and it takes it's taking him a lot longer to do it. And one of the days that he went to the stable to see the horses and to start brushing them out, he came across a monster character, like a monster, a horned beast, I guess is what it's called. A horned beast. A horned beast. And the horned beast, I mean, the story when you tell it as a story is definitely a lot more intense, but how it goes is he, he sees this horned beast tying knots in the horse's mane and then it ends with him being scared and the way that my grandpa used to tell it was and the moral of the story is go back to church or mm-hmm. you better be in church you know yeah but there's mm-hmm. also pride yeah mm-hmm. mixed in with that story you shouldn't be that you shouldn't be that prideful mm-hmm. when i read it i saw it as being vain but also that it's kind of the devil figure in the story is just playing on also our anxieties because I I'm the type of person that if I'm I like things to be perfect especially things when it comes to like your hair or makeup just outward appearance things so if something was continuously messing with like my hair or my horse's hair that would drive me nuts mm-hmm. and I would be it would be like playing on my anxieties a lot of things being out of place or not perfect mm-hmm. whereas Tanya read it completely different mm-hmm. yeah well when I think about brushing hair I think about how I deal with anxiety and a lot of that is petting my own dog right mm-hmm. so I see the horses as much the same way so you're petting the dog or petting the horse and going through it and it's very calming so for me, I don't know. I feel like the story is, the moral of the story is to reconnect with the animals and with nature. Yeah. But I don't know. There's so many interpretations to that one story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it too. The church like separating people away from other creatures who are just as important, you know. Our horse can, right? Important to like our livelihood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of the stories have to do with horses. Yeah. Even mom's story. There's lots of animals in her stories that I've read. Mm-hmm. You have to think too that at the time when these stories were being told and when they were happening, population as a whole did not deal with mental health issues. They did not mm-hmm. deal with stress. They did not deal with anxiety or depression. Things of, of that nature are 21st century 
issue. Mm -hmm. So for them at that point in time, it would have been about the devil. It would have been about pride. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's like the fascinating thing about stories that you always get something different out of it. No matter who tells it, just, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. it can always be different. Mm -hmm. There we go. So would you be able to talk to us, just going back to your, to the book that you're writing, mom, would you be able to talk to us a little bit about your writing process and how you decided to start writing the story? Well, I actually started writing this story about two years ago. I have a unusual sense of humor and I was writing the story on more of a, a funny type of note and I had gone through several chapters in the writing and I looked at it one day and I went okay you know what I don't like this this isn't the way I want to approach it this isn't what I want to portray so I scrapped it I was having a hard time deciding okay am I going to do things chronologically how am I going to start this story And of course, I was stuck on that for a while. And then I was in Winnipeg. My sister and I decided to go see a seer. And I had never met this lady and she didn't know anything about me. And she was telling me that I needed to write. And I needed whatever came into my head to just write it down. And don't stop writing, just continue writing it down. Don't worry about having an order order to it or anything like that just write so I took her advice and I just wrote and I'm gonna put it together later (laughs) and that that really worked for me and I find that I do have a lot to say (laughs) Mm-hmm. Have you thought about how you want to end the story? I think it's going to be a two-part story, is how it's going to end off. The ending will be when we move to the city. And then from there, it'll be a story between my 13th year up until my 19th year. And that is a completely another story in itself once we move to the city. Mm-hmm. So will your stories, when you were writing them, were they coming out in chronological order? Or no. were they just coming out? Just coming out. What would happen is that, you know, I'd have a moment in, in my childhood that would pop into my head and I would, over the process of several days, you know, okay, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Who was with me? Mm-hmm. And I put it all together in my head, and then I put it down. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. Yeah, I was. Uh, <laughs> one of the stories that uh, I was telling was my mom had a boyfriend, and our family hated this man. Absolutely hated this man. And when we moved to the city, I came home one day. And there was a lot of agonized sounds, moaning and groaning coming from upstairs. So the first thing I do is roll my eyes and say, oh, God, I don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) (laughs) 
but uh, there was a lot of moaning, so I slowly made my way up the stairs. And once I got up to the stairs, then of course it got even louder and, and it sounded like somebody was in absolute total agony. So I kind of tipped my toe, tiptoed up to the door and just stood on the outside and I was trying to, you know, okay, I don't want to catch them in bed. Anyway, <laughs> so I was kind of, a, but at the same time, the moaning and groaning and, uh, and I just kind of peeked over to uh, the edge and I could see these feet and they were just cringing. They were working their way up just like spastic. It looked like it really hurt. So then there was a more moaning and just, ah, oh, yelling kind of thing. So I couldn't handle it anymore. I decided, you know what, I gotta go see what's going on. I stepped in and my mom's boyfriend was in just agony. Like he was doubled over in pain. I thought that he was having a baby. Oh. <laughs> like the pain was coming in waves. He was beat red and he was just holding himself. He was in so much pain. And then my mom looked at me and she said, he has kidney stones. Oh. And I went, oh. So I <clears throat> ducked out of the room, covering my mouth, and burst into laughter as soon as I walked out. And I went to my room, which was right beside theirs, and I could hear everything. And you know, that guy was in agony all night. Mm. It took him a long time to hatch that stone. Wow. And it still makes me smile. <laughs> 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 and it, like it looks really bad because somebody's telling me, oh, you know, I had a kidney stone and I look at them <laughs> right. with a big smile on my face. <laughs> they think that I'm being mean. I'm there, well, <laughs> you have to understand why I find that funny. <laughs> yeah. And my sister, same thing. The two of us just laid in our beds back, totally relaxed. Listening every time he had a wave. <laughs> it was a good day. <laughs> so do you think any of your siblings will ever write down their stories or help you with maybe like another book in the future? My sister has been helping me with some of the facts. Okay. Okay. Timeline. We lived, the house was called a Pinto house. And... The reason it was called a Pinto house is because it was a house of many colors. Mm -hmm. And that's my mom. So the people in the village named it the Pinto house. We lived there for a time and then we moved to the Lambert house. So we stayed there for about a year. Then we moved back to the Pinto house. And then we finally, once the house was moved, moved back into the Lambert house because it was moved to the front of our property right off the main road. Mm. So it's, okay, this happened when we were at the Pinto house. Was it the first time, the second time? So mm. she helps mm -hmm. me sort that out. Right. So that helps a lot too. Mm -hmm. Does she ever have a say, Mom, on how you represent her? Does she ever get mad at you for that? I sent her a chapter that I had done a few weeks ago and the chapter is called Bell. And it's all about her and what happened with her and how 
how what was going on with me affected her life. Mm. She was just as traumatized as mm. I was, mm -hmm. just seeing some of the things that were going on. We talked about um, how she was actually put in the hospital as a toddler. I think she was around four at mm -hmm. the time because she was having so much difficulty dealing with our life mm. that she couldn't deal with it. And she was having nightmares and she was sleepwalking. And so she ended up going into the hospital for a while for that. When she came back, she was different. Mm -hmm. She was able to stand up on her own, and she actually is really good about standing up for herself now and more able to cope. My brother, on the other hand, I don't tell him what I'm up to. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? I don't know. I guess because he's more interested in the Métis status today and in what's mm. going on with the Métis today. Mm -hmm. And I'm more concerned about what happened with the Métis back then and how it affects us today. Mm -hmm. And it, it still does. Mm -hmm. Tanya, for example, when we had children, we decided to raise them white. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my children having to deal with the prejudices that I faced growing up. Mm -hmm. In our community, some of our background is German and Dutch. And at that particular time, Germans were a no-no. <laughs> right. During that era, it wasn't a good thing to be a German. So, of course, you know, all the little Métis kids would heckle and, and you know, give me a hard time about the German that was in my background. So... After a time, we actually went to school in the city. And when we went to the school in the city, well, we were dirty Indians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's no making anybody happy. Mm -hmm. And really, it, it shouldn't be an issue. So we raised the, the kids without prejudice, and we raised them white. And we did do Métis things, but they didn't know that they were Métis things. Mm -hmm. That's a very familiar story to a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, when Tanya self-identified, now she's, she's getting a lot of racism. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, people are still like that. We're in the 21st century. Come on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Get with the program. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the face of Canada is changing. You need to grow with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just because I saw him poking his head around the corner a few times, how does your husband feel about you writing down your stories? He's more worried about my mental health mm. and going through the stories. Some of the chapters that I write, I'm just sobbing my heart out mm -hmm. and, and can barely talk and I'm typing and I'm crying all over my keyboard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But I think that if you're putting your heart into your story, people will listen to you when it comes from your heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talked a lot about what your story is about and your process of writing. Would you be able to tell us, Mom, if you have 
I guess, a favorite story so far, far, or maybe one that you haven't written about that you're looking forward to? Or is it the kidney stones? <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, there's two sections that I've written so far that really make me smile. And the first one is the kidney stone. And the second one, <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell us. My mom had a beach party and my dad wasn't there. We were there and there was a lot of people and her boyfriend was there and her boyfriend's family was there. Anyway, boyfriend was, he had a little bit too much to drink. Mm. And mm -hmm. the beaches that are in St. Ambrose, we get a lot of sandbars. So it'll be deep. You hit a sandbar where it's only ankle deep. And, you know, you can be a mile out and still only have, have the water up to your ankles. So anyway, her, her boyfriend was out on the water He's actually quite far out. He was drinking a beer, and he was just kind of walking the sandbar and enjoying his beer. Then um, my sister was sitting on the shoreline watching him. Like, she had just a straight-line view of what he was doing. So she was watching him walk back and forth on, on the sandbar. And then she said that he took a step, and he disappeared. And she said, all you could see was his beer. <laughs> so he's, he's in the water, drowning, but he's making sure that he's saving his beer. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he's got his beer bottle above the water line, and she's watching him, and he's down there, and she's still watching him. All she sees is the beer bottle and his hand. He's <laughs> not coming up. And she's looking around. Anybody else see him? Well, maybe not. That's okay. <laughs> so he's under the water and he's not coming up. And she's waiting. <laughs> and waiting. Hmm. I guess he's not gonna come up. <laughs> so she was she was enjoying watching him drown. <laughs> <laughs> Beer was still up, so she knew he was still alive. <laughs> and I guess one of his brothers had seen him go down. His brothers ran out and, and pulled him out of the water. <laughs> we kind of like to laugh at that. <laughs> Damn, just another minute. <laughs> <laughs> Have you started looking at any publishing companies yet for publishing your book? Or do you think you're going to try and self-publish? or? I don't think I want to self-publish. I want my story to be read. And I, I think if I self-publish, then I won't be able to get it out to the amount of people that I want to read it. Mm -hmm. I want people to be able to know what Métis life was like and, and what my life was like and what effects people had, like how, what affected them insofar as religion and what the nuns did to the kids that were in school, how it affected them and how it affected the families and on and on. There's repercussions for everything and sometimes people live with those all of their lives and then it becomes a cycle and it doesn't get better. Mm -hmm. So that being said, I don't know if 
a publishing company would be interested in my story. I'm hoping that perhaps the Indigenous publishers would be interested in my story mm -hmm. and publish that way. I thought about uh, perhaps the U of A maybe wanting to, to publish it as well, mm -hmm. but I have to finish it first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So who do you want to read the book? Do you have an audience in mind? Actually, I'm, I'm hoping that white people will read it because mm -hmm. I, I want them to know that the Métis people and the Indigenous people aren't like that because they want it to be like that. They have themselves in a cycle from something that happened hundreds of years ago and they have no idea how to get themselves out of it. Mm -hmm. And the public in general, I find is still extremely racist against the Indigenous group. And it's not fair. They've been judged harshly. And because they're judged so harshly, they're having a hard time to heal and, and move on with their lives. Mm -hmm. It's very true. Mm -hmm. And really, the white people need to stop, take a moment, put yourself in that position. And how do you think you'll be? Mm -hmm. Do you think that you're going to be a well-balanced individual after mm -hmm. that? I don't think so. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think, I'm, I'm hoping it would be a good, a good lesson. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking it might get a lot of empathy? Yeah, I think so. More understanding, I'm, I'm hoping. You know, mm -hmm. don't judge people until you've been able to see their story, know their story, and be able to put yourself in that position. Mm -hmm. And, okay, well, maybe they're like that for a reason. What can we do to help? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. So, speaking of helping... I know that this podcast is about writing, editing, and publishing. I know that you're, I guess I would, if I had to label you, say an emerging author. Mm -hmm. If there are any young people out there that are listening to this, what kind of advice could you give them? Or anybody, not just young people. All people. That might want to be sharing their stories. That's true. I think they have to write from the heart. You know, whatever, whatever moves them to create that's don't let other people dictate your story you have to tell your own story don't stop until you get it done mm-hmm yeah I think that's really great advice yeah do you have any other questions no I I don't <laughs> like thank you for sharing your story with yeah. us and I'm very excited to hear your book when it, or read it, not hear it, unless it's on audio. But then that could be bad. <laughs> yeah, that would actually be awesome. Yeah. Listen to it in the car and you can, like, ugly cry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to ugly cry. No one wants to. It just happens. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. But I cannot wait to read it when it comes out. Yeah. It does yeah. have moments. Yeah. 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 I think everybody's life has moments where when you think back on it, you just feel like ugly crying mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's what that's what makes life what it is I guess mm -hmm. right it's yeah. nice for healing yeah. Exactly. yeah I think too a lot of people talk about the hardships in their life and 
their hardships are things like, well, I had to walk a mile to get to school. Well, you got two feet. That's not a hardship. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, it, it, it's not. It's true. Hardship is, were you starving? Did you have to go hunt for your own food? Were you, you know, beaten? Mm-hmm. Were you mentally abused? Like, what did you live through? That's hardship. Do you have any other things that you wanted to say about your book? I don't think so. Do you have a title for it yet? No. My no. original title was going to be, I Hate Zinnias. <laughs> Can you tell us why? My mom loves zinnias. And my mom used to make me look after her zinnias all the time. Oh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't want to go the, the typical Aboriginal title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want something that's going to reflect more me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's still a working process thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I'm afraid right now that if I label it, it might change the outcome of the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd keep it open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Publisher might change your title anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> really? They do that? They do that. They do. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll, you'll have to cross that road when you get to it. Well, that's assuming that somebody's interested in publishing it. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, you never know. You I'm never not counting on it because well, why would you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You write because you, you have a story to tell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily to get out there and change other people's lives. Yep. She's finally being nice to you. Yes, yes. she is. Yes. She is. I'm petting her now. <laughs> yeah, for all the listeners, we've been accompanied by dogs today. So we have two other special guests that are making this an extra special podcast. <laughs> we're just petting them. Like yes. <laughs> we're, having our, we're having pet therapy at the same time as doing mm-hmm. podcasts today. So... Yeah. All right. Well, then I guess I will take this opportunity to thank you for joining us on the podcast, Mm Mum. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Until next time.